Welcome to Building a Greener Idaho. Your source for insightful conversations with diverse voices at the intersection of people, profit, and planet. Good evening. I am delighted to welcome you to the ninth Northwest Climate Conference. My name is Katherine Himes, and I direct the University of Idaho's McClure Center for Public Policy Research. The McClure Center serves as a convener of diverse stakeholders, provides reliable nonpartisan information on tough policy issues, and trains students and leaders in public policy. Tonight's program marks the opening of the Northwest Climate Conference, which occurs here in Boise through Thursday, October 11th. The conference, which rotates locations from Idaho to Oregon and Washington, brings together researchers and practitioners from across the region to discuss scientific results, challenges, and solutions related to impacts of climate on people, natural resources, and infrastructure in the Pacific Northwest. This evening, we are so fortunate to hear Kate Gordon open the Northwest Climate Conference with her talk, Risks and Opportunities for Idaho in a Changing Climate. Kate Gordon is a lawyer, urban planner, nonprofit advisor, and national leader in the green jobs and climate risk movement in the United States. Please join me in welcoming Kate Gordon to the stage and to Boise. Thank you so much for inviting me here and back to Boise, which is one of my favorite cities. And it's so nice to have rain. I know it's weird for you all, but coming from Northern California, we don't have rain anymore. So it's, um, it's sort of a, a nice reminder that precipitation exists in the world. So I am um, here to talk about risk and opportunity and um, really what those mean in a local context. I feel like we, we've become really used to talking about climate change in this very global 50,000 foot climate science, you know, way, what these dire predictions of what will happen to the planet if the Earth's surface warms past 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, other numbers that are hard to get your head around. I personally can't convert Celsius to Fahrenheit. So for me, those numbers are particularly hard for, to get my head around. Um, much less do I know what the world will feel like if it is two degrees warmer than pre-industrial temperatures. I mean, that is a very hard thing to get your head around. If we stay doing what we're doing now, we keep going up and that's bad. And if we go and if we do things um, with climate policy, then we'll, we'll have reductions. But it's these types of charts, which are critically important in climate science, are extremely, extremely hard, I feel like, to focus on when you're trying to make decisions on a day-to-day -day basis. We're also used to hearing about what types of policies we should be putting in place to slow down this warming. And a lot of that conversation is about global compacts. And some of it's about federal policy. And then occasionally, it's about other states and what they're trying to do or not do. It's still difficult to get your head around exactly what that means. What can you here in Idaho do about a global compact? How does that affect you? How can you participate? The IPCC, which is the International Panel on Climate Change, which puts all the data into those global compact conversations, just came out with their report, which was commissioned by a number of governments, um, essentially saying what, what it would take to get to 1.5 degrees. Because in the Paris Agreement, there was a whole debate about should we go to 2 or 1.5. The island nations, which are essentially already underwater, essentially said, we have to do 1.5. You can't do 2. We're going to be gone. So the, the governments commissioned this report. And essentially, it's very dire. What we found was that business as usual gets us there very 
very, very fast. We're actually looking at some of those scary predictions by 2040. So the, the timeline has sped up dramatically. And we found that past emissions are already causing impacts. You know this, you're seeing the impact. But the dire predictions are there. They're more dire than they were. It still leaves us asking, what do we do? So while these things are incredibly important, it's a not a very accessible way for businesses, investors, you all, people, um, city managers, to figure out what to do in the economy day to day about this problem. We feel very removed, I feel very removed from global UN conversations and from Washington, even though I've worked in Washington, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to get one's head around. In 2013, I was talking to a friend who had just come back from a very fancy dinner at the Department of Treasury. And he had been at this table where the secretary, I think it was Jack Lew at the time, and others were talking about big macroeconomic impacts and what was going to happen to the economy. And they were talking about the, the, you know, the post-recession and inequality, of course. And they were talking about cyber, cyber terrorism. And they were talking about um, uh, fat growth of fascism in certain countries and all kinds of trends that we are, in fact, seeing play out. And at the end of dessert, this friend of mine sort of raised his hand and said, you know, what about climate change? And essentially everyone else in the room sort of patted him on the head and was like, that's such a nice little issue that you have. Why don't you give some philanthropy money to it? And you know, maybe it will, the, the youth, this is what you always hear in these conversations, young people will fix this problem, right, on campuses. And he came back saying, this is insane. You know, this is a macroeconomic problem. This is gonna be as big as globalization. It's gonna be as big as automation. We have to talk about it. So we, we tackled the Risky Business Project really to bring economic discussion and the sort of the grown, climate change to the grown-ups table on economic discussion. So this project was really uh, intended to bring together serious messengers from all over the country with serious economic backgrounds to talk about why climate change is an economic issue on the scale of globalization, of automation, of cyber terrorism, of all these things that were talked about at this dinner. We focused in on the economic risks of unchecked climate change, and we used the risk framework for two reasons. One, it's very effective when you talk about climate change. The thing about climate change that's actually different than cyber terrorism, for instance, is that it gets worse every day that we don't do anything about it. I mean, maybe that's true for cyber terrorism too, actually, but it's emissions in the atmosphere are literally building up and then all the risk profiles change. So what is today a one in 100 year flood is tomorrow a one in 20 year flood. We were already seeing this. Houston had three one in 100 year storms within five years. So we're already seeing this, right? So th the thing about doing a risk analysis is you can actually shift your projection, so what's a tail risk today for any economist in the room becomes a, a likely event tomorrow. We also use the risk framework because it's something people talk about in boardrooms. Any of you who've ever done investments or, or been in a, run a business, um, you talk about risks, you plan according to risks. It's a very familiar language to people who are doing business decision making, much more familiar than either the UN compact process or federal policy making. So we wanted to bring this to a very key audience. A lot of work has been done since the original Risky Business Project on this risk framework in particular, and sorry this is a little bit small, but in particular by the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Investments, which is a task force that Mike Bloomberg helped pull together, in fact, within, the, within an economic process, the G20 process. And basically what they did was break down the risk from climate change into financial terms. So they said there's three big kinds of risk when it comes to climate change. There's physical risk. So what happens when physical impacts actually affect where you are, your supply chain, your locality? Um, a great example of that is uh, what happened to the car industry when the tsunami hit Japan. 
and the supply chain was disrupted. We're actually seeing that now with Indonesia and Micron, an Idaho company, they're having supply chain disruptions. Um, there's transition risk, which is what, do, what is the risk of the world transitioning away from fossil fuels in order to deal with climate change? What is the risk to your company? This is a big thing thought about by oil companies in particular, but um, others who are very carbon dependent as well. And then finally, um, uh, litigation risk, which is an obvious one um, that companies talk about a lot. So this has actually been very helpful because it lays those out in, in, in investment terms. We at um, Risky Business talked a lot about physical risk, and I'm gonna talk about physical risk right now, and then I'm gonna talk about opportunity. And I'm gonna talk about physical risk because Idaho has an economy that's very dependent on resources and on place-based economic activity. And place-based economic activity is particularly susceptible to physical climate risk. So I'm gonna talk a bit about that. Uh, one of the things that about this project um, that we was really interesting to me was just how local, even though we talk about climate change in these global terms, and yes, at the end of the day, it's a global problem that needs a global solution, the impacts are extraordinarily local and the solutions are extraordinarily local. When we did the project, the modeling underlying the project, of which there were 20 terabytes of data, let me just say, in this project, it was a very large modeling project. The modeling was done at the county level in the United States on physical impacts specifically from heat and sea level rise um, and in five separate industries. Very, very granular. What you realize when you start to dig in at that level is, um, is that this is incredibly local. And I think that's important because sometimes you'll hear people say things like, why should we in Idaho care about bringing down carbon emissions? We are 45th out of 50 states in our contribution of carbon emissions to the United States, that's true. To me, that's like saying Idaho is only 0.4% of US GDP, which is also true. Why should we have an economy? <laughs> right? <laughs> well, <laughs> because like economic impacts and economic growth, climate impacts are extraordinarily local. Different places, as you can see here, very different impacts from heat. It's also true for sea level rise. It turns out the East Coast and the West Coast are completely different when it comes to sea level rise. Other impacts as well. So, uh, Tom Steyer, when we were doing this project, famously said, talking about climate change in terms of U.S. averages is like saying, my head's in the refrigerator and my feet are in the oven, so overall I'm great. Right? <laughs> that, that's essentially what you see here. Looking at the maps, you'd think that the Northwest was doing pretty well. And I get that a lot when I talk in Idaho and Washington and Oregon. Um, it is true that compared to the Southeast, it is going to be livable here <laughs> in Idaho. That is, I cannot guarantee that for parts of the Southeast, that there will be livability, but there will be livability here. But zeroing in on Idaho, uh, there are some pretty significant um, uh, impacts, and you already know about many of these, but we can talk about them in some detail. One is, of course, just increased heat. There's a reason that we used to say global warming before everyone decided in whatever messaging meetings they were having that we should say climate change instead, but we used to call this global warming, and there's a reason. It's about warming. Warming is what causes all these, all these things. Warming causes sea level rise. Warming causes extreme um, weather events. Warming is the thing in the atmosphere, in the oceans, that leads to these impacts. And, and this state is absolutely going to get hotter. We found in the Risky Business Report that right now you have an average of five days a year over 95 degrees. That is Fahrenheit. We did the whole report in Fahrenheit because of my inability to translate into Fahrenheit. <laughs> right now you have about five days on average over 95 degrees. In the next few decades, that number will go up between 18 and 42 additional days over 95 every year on average. Why is that a big range? Because this is a risk analysis. We can talk about that. 
ad nauseum, but it's a big range, but that's likely. It will go up, go up likely 18 to 40, 42 days additional, and then the outside risks are much higher than that. That is a lot more days, over 95 degrees. That has some impacts you might not think about. One of them is labor productivity. It turns out the biggest single economic impact we found in this report to the economy as a whole was the decrease in labor productivity because of increased heat in every state, in every state. People cannot do outdoor activities when the heat gets too extreme. You already see this. The planes, I mean, the planes themselves couldn't fly in Phoenix last summer. Phoenix has started almost exclusively doing nighttime uh, construction um, in the summertime. We're already seeing this in a number of other southern states. People can't do outdoor agricultural activities. That will be an issue here. People can't do other um, high-risk activities in, in manufacturing and, um, and transportation and, and other things outdoors that use physical labor. So that's a huge impact uh, wherever you are. But the other impacts you know a lot more about, for instance, wildfires. Uh, wildfire risk here, of course, is a massive impact, and you're already seeing it. It's an impact across this region. This matters a lot, and it matters for a whole host of reasons we could talk about. But because I'm talking about economics, let's talk about why it matters to economics. It matters because your wood product sector is very, very valuable in this state. Um, we, we, in Idaho, ship products all over the country. Um, $2.3 billion of the state economy is based on the wood product sector, and it's a sector that, as I'll talk about in a minute, has a real potential to be part of the opportunity side of the climate problem if it doesn't go away because of increased wildfires. Um, last year's fires depressed the timber harvest by 18%. Mm -hmm. That was a big blow to the state. Extreme heat also causes agricultural yield declines. Um, those are even more local than anything else because individual crops have different reactions to heat. So it turns out, who knew, that wheat is much less heat sensitive than corn. Some of you probably knew this. I didn't. Um, now I do. Um, it turns out that chickens are very heat sensitive and cows less so. Um, the things you learn. In this state, potatoes alone worth $1.2 billion to the state economy. Yield declines here are not nearly as severe in some other parts of the country. You actually have yield increases in some crops, I will be honest. Um, warmer, warmer weather can mean double cropping. It can mean adding crops. However, uh, the potato harvest does have an impact. And Idaho ships agricultural products all over the place. Um, big, big part of the economy. Most important here, probably in terms of, of heat, is that impact on water. Now, it's, you should never believe anybody who tells you they know the answer to how much rain there will be as a result of climate change. The single hardest thing to model is precipitation changes, but we do know that warmer weather leads to less snowpack, and in states like this, less snowpack leads to less water in the summer, and that's a big issue here because of, obviously, agriculture, also just municipal water supply, also hydropower, which turns out to be a big contributor to the state economy. Interestingly, I, I, just to show you I'm not making all this up, um, and other people believe me, Idaho Power has realized this, and this is Idaho Power's most recent um, sustainability report, which I actually recommend looking at. It's on their website. It has a whole new section that didn't exist before on adaptation, which is all about this question of the need to look at snowpack and water variability, and the their Idaho Power, you'll see in the small print here, is starting to look at backing up their hydro system in, air, in times of vulnerability with other systems that they, like renewable energy that, um, that can be more reliable across the year. That's a big deal for a fairly conservative board to have come to this kind of conclusion um, about, basically about climate change. <laughs> 
key point about all these impacts, Idaho's economy is not self-contained. Um, I should say again, I talked a lot about the land-based stuff because I think about it a lot. It's very place-based. But it, microchips are actually a much bigger part of the estate economy than either potatoes or um, timber. And the, if you look at the iPhone, which is the big supply, you know, Micron is a big supplier to the iPhone. The, I, the iPhone's um, supply chain goes all over the world, and much of it is in Southeast Asia, which has much stronger impacts. Every time there's an extreme event, that supply chain gets disrupted, and Micron has an impact. So you're not an island. A, we're exporting things that are affected, and B, we're depending on things that are affected. So the key point of that, about that is that this is all extremely local, um, and that these are inherently economic risks. But... Uh, so we have to slow them down. We have to slow down these risks. We have to deal with them. The good news is climate solutions are also really local and tied to the economy, and Idaho is actually in a pretty good position with some of these solutions. So what do we do about this problem? The basic formula is easy, and it's about decarbonization. we got to do three big things. We have to switch as much as possible to electricity because it's a lot easier to decarbonize electricity than it is transportation. Uh, and in industry, we need to make that electricity as clean as possible, and we need to use less of it. Um, so who in the room has read Omnivore's Dilemma? You seem like an Omnivore's Dilemma crowd, yeah. Uh, so with apologies to Michael Pollan, um, we need to use electricity, not too much, mostly renewables. You can remember that. And I had to add this one, it's clunky, but and we have to take carbon out of the air. One of the things that the 1.5 report from the IPCC says, and it's the first time that the climate science community has come out on this strongly, is no matter what else we do, we actually have to do carbon removal as well because there's legacy emissions in the air and we have to get it out and every single one of their scenarios to get to 1.5 includes it. That will be important later. So decarbonization is interesting because it is a different way of doing economics. It's, it's hard for people to get their heads around because we're used to building a big thing like a coal plant then buying a bunch of coal forever and burning it, and it's really cheap to burn. But the, so the cost is the initial cost to build the plant and then a bunch of buying the fuel. Decarbonization is about initial cost is pretty expensive of all this capital infrastructure. You have to build all these wind, wind, wind farms and solar farms and you have to do all this new planning, but then you don't have to pay for any fuel. I mean, you guys are used to this, right? You have your hydropower, right? This is why your electricity costs are so cheap. You're not paying for the fuel, right? So over time, fuel savings way outperforms the initial capital cost. It does require a different kind of accounting, but we're starting to see people do this across sectors, in particular at moments of capital stock turnover. So this transition can be very scary to people. They can say, what do we have to do, like erase everything we already have and build an entire new economy? No, but you really do every time you have to replace something, you really need to replace it with something low carbon. And that's true for you know, GM, and it's true for everyone in this room. If you have a boiler that goes out, you need to replace it with something that's more efficient. If you have a car that goes out, you need to think about replacing it with something that's low carbon or ele electric. Um, companies need to do this too, countries need to do this too, states need to do this too. The other important thing to note is that policy drives a lot of this change and policy is happening and markets are changing all around us. The Western regional market is moving very fast toward decarbonization. Um, SB 100 just passed in California. That requires 100% clean energy by 2045. That's a very big deal for that market. Washington State, Washington's considering a carbon tax in, in November. Um, not on the ballot, actually, but uh, it's, a, it's a legislative play. Um, and then Buy Clean California is a procurement standard that actually requires a carbon accounting, carbon lifecycle accounting of specific products being used in California procurement for things like Caltrans, I mean building highways, um, building, building new buildings. 
Um, and Colorado's got candidates running on 100% clean. So you have a whole regional conversation about moving to this kind of economy. Why does that matter? Because Idaho has incredible access to that market. Forget, I'm gonna just say, forget about what's happening in state policy and local policy. Just selling into that market is a massive opportunity for this state. The US market is moving. Natural gas prices and renewables coming down have changed the market for electricity. This is happening regardless of Idaho policy. And the global market is moving. 40, 40, or 20 countries and 40 jurisdictions have passed prices on carbon. One of those, the biggest, is China. What does Idaho also have? Extremely good access to the Pacific Rim through Western ports. So these markets are moving. It is not a good idea to be left behind. Opportunities specifically for this state, and I'm happy to talk a lot more about this, but I see some real opportunities, you know, honestly, based on the same things that cause the risk, the land-based, the uh, your place-based sectors. Um, I, as Amy in the front here knows, am obsessed with cross-laminated timber, so I have to talk about it. Actually, cross-laminated timber can be used for very large buildings, which is why it's, <coughs> why it's cool. Um, it can replace steel and concrete in buildings. That's important because places like California are doing life cycle analysis of building products, and China's replacing theirs. Couple other things here, um, carbon removal. I just said the 1.5 report talks a lot about carbon removal. Many, many states and countries are starting to incorporate carbon removal into their policies. California low carbon fuel standard just, just passed a, a new standard allowing for carbon removal to be part of their, their standards so that companies can meet the low carbon fuel standard by doing carbon removal projects. Um, Oregon's potential climate uh, cap and um, cap and, and invest bill includes carbon removal. Uh, California already has a big offset market for removal, and now the global market's heating up. Um, this picture is actually one of the Idaho tribes that actually sells into the California market already. It's already got value for a number of people, and I think it's a, it's a real opportunity here. You have a lot of land and a lot of trees. Um, up in the side, you've got a lot of renewables, either existing or potential. Um, and however you think of hydro, let's just put hydro and geothermal in the renewable resource category. Hydro, ge ge geothermal, a lot of wind and solar potential. That means a lot of potential for storage and grid modernization and storing all that renewable and then selling it into a larger grid. There is an active discussion going on about regionalizing the Western grid. You could sell that in and meet California's SB 100 standard without yourselves passing SB 100. So it's just something to really think about all of these possibilities. So are you gonna lasso and lead? That's the question. Or are you going to uh, fall behind? So there's, there's a bunch of policy stuff. I'm not gonna go through all this. Policy and business stuff you need to do to get there, and I, I could talk about that. We can talk about that in the Q&A. Um, there's also a lot of adaptation. I'm actually an author on the National Climate Assessment Adaptation Chapter. And that's just an important part of this conversation is that a bunch of those emissions are already in the atmosphere and a bunch of those impacts are already happening and we need to adjust to them and become resilient. And, and Idaho has a, a place to play there too. Um, so, you know, honestly, the big takeaway for me, and this is Greg Page, the former head of Cargill, who was on Risky Business talking about the changing climate and opportunities. The takeaway for me is that this is not a problem for another day. This is about decisions we're making now, um, this week and this month at every level the private sector, the public sector, this is what's going to determine our economic future. And we gotta get started. And thank you. How do you see, what do you see as 
some of, say, two of the major changes on this issue that have come about with the new presidential administration? There's so, there, there are so many ways into that question. I, I mean, I think the, the obvious answer would be to be very negative, right? I mean, I think there, there are certainly things that I'm very worried about. One of the things on the slide I glossed over, which was the, um, the you know, how, how does policy actually deal with this decarbonization thing? One of the things that's on there is stop subsidizing risky behavior. And something that I worry about a lot with this administration is just we're seeing a lot of subsidizing of risky behavior. So not just an end to things that were progress forward, but an actual return, for instance, to coal use, which makes absolutely no economic sense. I mean, it's not, even if there weren't a climate change conversation going on, it's not the cheapest or the best option right now. So it, it is very surprising to me to see that kind of just deliberate, you know, subsidizing of, of, of risk. Um, on the other hand, I, you know, I am one of those people who thought that, who believe that both, I'm not happy that we said we're getting out of Paris or about the end of the clean power plan, but I actually see all the time that, that companies in other countries have moved beyond those conversations. I mean, we are, we are in a world where every other country is, I mean, is aggressively calling for, for instance, this 1.5 degree report. It wasn't enough to say we should get below two degrees. The rest of the governments in the world wanted to see what it would take to go below that, right? So we have a very active uh, international conversation still happening, and a number of alliances which would not have been possible before, Europe and China, that alliance was not there before, um, and that really came about on climate change, that really came about because of the U.S. withdrawal. So it's interesting. You mean alliance that. between Europe and between China? Between Europe and China mm -hmm. on very specific climate technologies and low carbon options and, you know. Because I know um, Hank Paulson is really, I mean the Paulson Institute, Institute really is focused on um, relationships with China and yeah. um, in improving that relationship and we've, we've seen, you know, the president, you know, take a different tack. Yeah, that's been, it's, that's been really difficult to watch, um, I think because Climate change, you know, if you look at what happened in Paris, the, the kind of pivotal moment was when the U.S. and China kind of came to agreement and came in the room and, and moved the ball forward in that conversation. And seeing the breakdown of that relationship mm -hmm. um, on this issue, which has historically been one where we could get along, there's a lot where we don't, um, has been challenging. I, I though still see, I mean, just to be, just because it's my nature to be optimistic, China's still doing a ton in this space. Um, and so are other countries, and so are states, and so are cities, and so is the private sector. The other big thing of hope that I have is that private, I talk, I spend a lot of time with private sector companies, particularly talking about risk and supply chains and, you know, what their operational response is, and they are acting. I mean, I have seen more, you know, insurance companies are divesting um, from coal and refusing to insure people that depend on it. Um, we are, and that's, that's again an economic issue. We're seeing companies do, uh, commit to 100% renewables. We're seeing companies, um, uh, you know, doing all kinds of really, you know, GM has made a major investment in electric vehicles, which they didn't, had not done a few years ago. People see that the market is changing, and I think that's hopeful. So how does that jive again with the presidential administration um, pushing more, more coal? Well, I think that the, co the coal thing is, again, the thing that really disturbs me because it, it makes no sense. It's not responsive to the private sector. It's not responsible to the market. It's not responsive to anything, right, rational. 
Um, but, but most of the action that I'm seeing outside of the federal government kind of conversation, Washington conversation, is pretty positive. So basically people are ignoring, businesses and people are ignoring yeah, <laughs> the federal government. Yeah, more than we would like. have thought, honestly. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the Clean Power Plan, the same thing. I mean, many, many utilities had already gone down that path, started down that path. When the power plan was passed, a lot of, you know, a lot of grumbling, but a lot of people had already started diversifying and moving because renewables are cheap. Are we going to see more nuclear? I, in this country, I would be very surprised. In the world, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, this country, it's just, it's extremely expensive to build, build nuclear in this country. How should we as um, lay citizens interpret this latest dire report from the United Nations? I mean, I think there's, you know, climate fatigue, if that's a word or a phrase. You know, people are like, oh my gosh, you know, it's just getting worse and worse and worse, and it seems so out of my control. Um, how, how significant is this UN report? It's, it's funny, I mean, it's very significant from a climate science perspective, right? It, and, and I sometimes feel like if you work in climate change, you have to have sort of two halves of your brain because on the climate science side, everything is dire and nothing is happening fast enough and everything needs to have been done yesterday and it's already too late, right? I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had where I've said, this thing is hopeful and someone says, it's already too late. And I'm like, great. Um, and that's all true. But then on the, on the climate economic side of my brain, at least, it's all about, well, how can we actually move markets? How can we actually put the incentives in place? And that stuff takes time, right? So I think this report's really important because it's, I mean, a couple things. One, it, it respects and acknowledges that there's a bunch of parts of the world where this is already like, it really is too late. I mean, where it's all, they are already in just survival mode. Um, and they're trying to figure out what to do and get some attention, right? But, um, I think it's also important just, you know, I'm sort of a carbon removal geek, but I think it's actually really important that it talks about carbon removal because it's the first time that one of these big reports really puts it out there and says, look, whether it's land-based, it's reforestation, it's afforestation, it's new agriculture practices, it's, um, or it's engineered carbon removal, like literally taking carbon out of the atmosphere, we have got to look at these options because we cannot we cannot get to where we need to go without them. That's the first time that's happened, and I think that's actually a motivator. So for, again, lay people, including me, uh, and we have several questions about this, when you talk about carbon removal, what do you mean by that, and what are the, the, the best methods for doing that? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question, and I think it can mean different things to different people depending on where you're frankly, like what you've seen, um, a lot of people think of it as what used, what we, like carbon capture and sequestration. So a lot of people think of it as things on coal plants that then capture and sequester the carbon. Um, and then some people think of it as sort of geoengineering. Uh, when I talk about it, I'm talking about things that are net negative. So removal that actually is removal of carbon from the atmosphere in some way or an industrial process that removes more than it puts in and that sequesters it for a long time. So what is that? That's basically on a spectrum. It's as easy as planting a tree does that, um, or lots of trees. It would have to be lots of trees. Um, Which Rotary here I know is involved in. Yeah, those I mean, are Rotary members. Trees are like urban trees, forestry. It's trees are crit critically important. Mm -hmm. um, so planting trees, 
uh, no-till, low-till agricultural practices, planting, deep root crops. There's all kinds of things you can do to do soil carbon. That's all really important, but the thing about land-based carbon removal is it only happens once. You don't keep removing. You plant a tree, and the tree eats a bunch of carbon, but it doesn't keep hmm. taking it. It's one big, big removal, essentially. Um, also, then the tree decomposes, and it really re-releases it, right? Luckily, it takes a while. Um, so I'm actually also talking about some of the things that are a little farther off, and on the industrial side, and on that, that side, I would say direct air capture is the big interesting new technology, which literally capturing carbon from the air, taking it and putting it into something that will, it will stay in for a long time. Um, that's super interesting, um, uh, new sort of set of technologies. People are taking, there's a couple of companies that are taking, one up in Switzerland is doing direct air capture and putting the carbon back into greenhouses and using it for, for growing. Uh, another company is taking carbon and putting it into um, concrete as a curing material and replacing aggregate in concrete with um, carbonate rock, basically. There's a bunch of interesting things. Nike has a shoe that has carbon in it uh, that's been sequestered. So who knew, right? Um, there's a lot going on in the carbon Nike utilization Air, space. Nike Air, Nike Air Nike carbon, I know, right? Um, there's a lot going on in that space, and, and it's very, it's, it's not, one of the things the IPCC people said in their report, in their, in their um, webcast was, you know, we don't really know how this is all gonna work, but it's gonna be necessary, and I'm just really bullish on, we need to figure out how it's gonna work. We need to put money into research, we need to be doing pilots, we need to figure it out. So another piece, and you just um, touched on it, and we, we certainly have a question I'm curious too, is, um, you know, you mentioned that Idaho is in a pretty good place versus the southeast on these matters, but I know that um, we're getting climate refugees. I mean, I just had some carpentry work done at my house. Interestingly enough, because we had so much rain and moisture, it's affecting my house. Mm -hmm. And I had a whole you know, set of stairs eventually rot out. And so I had this carpenter there and he was fixing them. And he said, um, I'm doing more and more projects for people from Texas who are moving here, who are climate refugees and from the Southeast. And they're building huge homes here. He said, they're massive. And that's just an anecdotal, that's just an anecdote. But we are, although we're in a good place vis-a-vis -vis those maps and everything, we are gonna experience <laughs> the effects of climate change with these people moving here, internal climate refugees, and they in turn are tilling up our fields, putting more cars on the road, taking down trees. So, you know, there's an effect yeah, in all, that respect. it's all integrated. I mean, I would say first that, that I believe that there are occasional people that are moving from places because they're worried about these impacts, mm -hmm. right? <coughs> I think way more people are moving because of affordability mm. issues. Um, and also, if you look at the numbers of the fastest growing places in the US, Las Vegas is still up there. <coughs> so is Phoenix, amazingly. Um, I would not move to Phoenix, but people do. Um, <laughs> sorry. I just, it's very hot. So I think it's happening. I think it's a very small number of people, but it does, your, your whole story points to, we really have got to be integrated about thinking about this. I just did a, it was a picture of it up there in one of the slides. I just did a piece for Foreign Affairs um, on how we need to start treating cl climate change like a chronic condition instead of an acute condition. So think of it in healthcare terms. It's more like type two diabetes than it is like a broken leg. 
It's you actually have to try to prevent it by changing behavior, and then if you have it, you have to actually change a bunch of things about your lifestyle and your, your activities and your diet in order to manage it. We need to be doing much more of that, and that's just true. I mean, again, it's, I think it's a macroeconomic shift in our economy. We talk, about, we talk about automation all the time, right? Everyone is always talking about robots and automation and how they're taking over jobs and what are we gonna do about it and how are we gonna retrain and what does it mean for growth? We need to be having the same conversations about climate change and planning with those conversations in mind. And yes, that does mean less sprawl and more density and smarter mobility patterns and all of those things are related. And it does mean a change in how we've been building cities for 100 years because we've been building them based on unlimited cheap fuel. So should um, municipalities and counties tax developers more who are building single family homes in a sprawling fashion? I mean, should there be some cost which of I'd course get then gets passed along to <laughs> you know the consumer, but should there now be a cost for building out as opposed to up or in? Look, I'm in general in, in favor, and it's another thing on that policy slide that I glossed over, I'm in general in favor of internalizing costs. So I think that a price on carbon is an internalized cost. Carbon is very expensive to our, our, to Idaho, to our society, to our economy, we should internalize it somehow. Um, I think we should internalize the costs that are created by sprawl. And it doesn't mean you, for, you ban these things, but for sure, I mean, cities subsidize sewer extensions and highway extensions all the time uh, to build new developments. Those things should be, internal, should be incorporated into the cost, and then it would be a little bit less cheap. Um, that's a planning conversation, not really a climate conversation, but it is really important. I mean, internalizing, internalizing the, these costs, which are real specific costs, they're not esoteric costs, they're not, um, they're not hard to quantify. We should absolutely be internalizing them because right now we're making a bunch of decisions, particularly when you think about real estate or roads or building a factory or, uh, plant, or plowing down a field or whatever. Those are decisions that are 40 or 50 year decisions. And we already know from the climate models what's gonna happen in 40 or 50 years. We're building for 40 or 50 years from now and we need to actually be cognizant of that. Um, we have several questions that deal with the issue of how to draw in, assist and um, help people who are in marginalized communities, lower economic communities. And I know you and I talked about this before um, your, your speech. You know, that it seems to me, and again, I'm an outsider, but it seems to me that many of the people who most need an electric vehicle, who are traveling long distances, um, because they can't afford to live close to work, are driving, you know, these uh, fuel inefficient cars, but can't afford to buy an electric vehicle or even a more efficient right. regular vehicle. So how, what's, how do we, how do we bring in all type, you know, I, I, I see quite a number of people I know who have electric vehicles, but they're also quite wealthy. Right. Well, and that's been, I mean, this is, it's not unusual when there's a new technology that the early adopters are people with money. That was true for computers, that was true for cell phones. I mean, this is a, uh, this is a trajectory. This is what happens. Then the price of the thing has to come down and then it has to have more adoption, right? I think that will happen with electric vehicles. I think it'll be slower. I did, I did a project um, at Center for the Next Generation that, that addressed this head on and I do think it's a real, um, it's a real concern. 
the thing with transportation, you look at that capital stock turnover chart I had, that was mostly stuff in the electrical side and the building side. It's like your furnace or your, um, or your boiler. Cars are tricky because people hold on to them for a really long time, um, particularly post-recession. It turns out the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has really good statistics on how people are holding on to their cars about twice as long. Um, people, lower income people in particular, actually millennials and people over 70 in particular are holding onto their cars for much longer because um, people can't afford to buy a new car, right? People don't have cash on hand and don't have credit. Um, and I just think that is a real issue because if the capital stock of vehicles is out there, it's giant, we need to turn it over. We need to help people transition. Um, and I think it's a stepped transition. This goes back to where some people are like, it has to happen tomorrow. And I sort of say, well, we have to actually do it um, and make it work for people. My argument has always been that we need to um, take advantage of all of these hybrids that are on the secondary vehicle market now. There's a lot of used hybrids out there, um, a lot of Priuses. And people who can get out of a 1995 car or a 2000 car, anything before 2005 is really inefficient, basically, can get out of one of those cars and get into something else, whether it's a hybrid, whether it's just a newer vehicle, we should be able to figure out ways to help people do that. There are things like the Cash for Clunkers program that we could be doing at a state level um, to help incentivize that and give people just the ability to retire a vehicle um, that's, have, that's both not great for the planet but also really bad for the air um, and um, bad for the children in those same neighborhoods that are, are, have the cars and be able to retire those vehicles, get a cash incentive for doing so and be able to buy something, ideally without good credit. One of the biggest barriers to this whole car thing has been credit. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a huge, you probably know this, but a huge subprime lending problem in the car industry um, that mirrors what we saw in housing. So it's a real issue, and it's one of these issues where it bleeds into something that climate people don't talk about that much, which is like credit counseling, you know? Um, but, it, but it turns out to be critically important. I will just say the other community of people, and I'm writing about this, a book about this right now, but I, I do think we have to be very focused also on communities, on both workers in energy-intensive industries and communities that are in extractive areas where they're actually extracting fossil fuels and that whole economy's been built around that, we do have to be very intentional about those transitions as well because you could just strand entire communities. Um, well, on a related transition. question, somebody, or note, somebody says, you know, how can these opportunities that you mentioned in your slideshow um, positively affect wor the working poor and rural communities here? Do you see opportunities for, you know, businesses that would... I do, I do. I mean, I think, you know, one of the obvious places is actually, and it's not something people think about immediately, but is grid modernization. <laughs> grid modernization and battery storage and just grid upgrades tend to be very good in for rural areas because they t it tends to create actually pretty decent jobs in non-urban parts of a state. Meaning what kind of jobs? So like lineman, jo lineman, I mean, lineman yeah. jobs, utility jobs. Um, putting uh, up the wind turbines. Putting, putting up, well, putting up wind think? turbines is, is a great temporary job. It's yeah. a construction job. So, right. you know, you have to think of construction and installation as, like, it's always going to be temporary. If you could do enough of it, though, like if you're putting up enough high-voltage line, power lines or if you're putting up enough systems or you're putting up enough solar arrays or whatever, mm -hmm. then it becomes more of a permanent job. It, it's all about the market. So I, I definitely think there's opportunities. I also think for people who have land, there's opportunities to make additional money by essentially farming carbon. Um, you saw a lot of this in the Midwest when ethanol, we can debate ethanol all day. But just talking about it from an economic perspective, ethanol became a hedge for a lot of Midwest farmers because commodity crops are very up and down and the cost is, it's a very volatile sector and people lose money all the time if the weather's not good um, or if the crop 
price goes down, ethanol was a great hedge for a lot of those farmers. I think carbon farming and sequestration could become that if we have the right processes in place. So there's, there's real opportunity. But it's a challenging, challenging um, thing. Somebody also wants to know, when you're looking at the, the, the risks um, of not doing anything on this issue, do, does Risky Business, the group that you were um, part of, um, factor in the cost of the health impacts of not doing anything on climate we change? We did, actually. We did a whole thing on, um, on one specific aspect of health, which was um, heat-related mortality. Mm -hmm. Uh, which turns out to be a big thing. Um, so it's related to those labor productivity charts. It actually, you, you go too far with heat and you go be beyond not being productive in labor and you go to like heat stroke. Um, we had a really interesting and one of the most dramatic things in the report is something that we call the humid heat stroke index. Um, so you, you guys don't really have this problem as much as they do east of the Mississippi, but in places where it gets really humid, um, the heat gets to a certain level and then your sweat no longer evaporates. Uh, when you're outside, and if that happens, then your core body temperature gets high mm -hmm. enough that you can have a heat stroke and die, ultimately. And that index, we actually see several days of that index east of the mm -hmm. Mississippi starting not that long from now. I mean, it's decades, but it's only like four decades from now. Um, so yeah, we and look at that. of course, asthma, too. Asthma, yeah. and there's a lot of work that's been done. We didn't do, but a lot of very good work about coal um, and, and early, early death numbers and asthma numbers. There's all kinds of stuff out there. The problem with that, though, when you're doing an economic analysis that's very local, the problem with the health impacts is that they're socialized. So the people who are doing the polluting aren't necessarily paying the health costs. Um, and the people who are you're asking to invest in the solutions aren't necessarily getting the health benefits, right? So if I'm saying to you, hey, company, I want you to invest billions of dollars in new charging infrastructure um, and electric vehicle infrastructure because it will have all these great benefits to people across their health, their lives, in terms of reduced health costs, that's not a, you're not gonna invest in that because that's not a return to you. And that's been a real issue with this, with, with that's why government is important at the end of the day. This is a policy conversation. And uh, I wanna get back to a bit of minutes, a, I just got the a sign. that's okay. <laughs> well, we might have a little, maybe. You're in charge. Eight. <laughs> um, get back to a little bit of a, cause I'm a little bit of a, political geek. Um, the, the newest Supreme Court Justice, um, Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh now. Um, yes, he started today. Um, how, if at all, do you see his, you know, well, he's had prior rulings that people have looked at in terms of uh, administrative law and, and the EPA and, uh, you know, I think kind of one of his comments is, has, was uh, global warming is not a blank check for the president, he mentioned in a previous situation. So how, maybe it's too early, but have you and your counterparts, your colleagues, thought a little bit about how he might, in the 5-4 yeah. situation, influence the, the balance? I of think a lot of people who do, I mean, I don't do a lot of the regulatory side of this work, which is critically important. Um, and that's sort of the, you know, the, the kind of EPA control and pollutant side. I will say that we do know from his past rulings that he's extremely pro-executive power. And as long as there's an executive who wants to use the agencies to preempt state law, I think we're gonna see, it's gonna be interesting because he's actually, he's actually, he and actually Justice Thomas as well are kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth on this issue, and Roberts a little bit too. 
They're all very pro-states' rights, um, and except when it comes to things like environmental regulation, and then they're all very pro-preemption. And I think that's been a real issue on the court um, already, and will continue to be an issue. And um, I think watching Thomas in particular, who's such a states' rights proponent, proponent, struggle with that will be interesting as states get more and more active in this space. Now, Kate, um, correct me if I'm wrong on the, on the terminology here, but the fourth national climate assessment is coming out, I believe, in December. And as you mentioned briefly, you're a co-author or author of one of the- One of the sections, yeah. One of the sections. Um, can you give us a little, you know, preview of the highlights or lowlights of this? Yeah, <laughs> of this? the highlights of the national climate assessment. It's very I'm, long. Yeah, um, yeah. The good I news mean, about the national climate assessment, let me just say, is that it had to come out, and it's put out by an agency that's not a political agency, um, and it's coming out. I mean, I think this is good news, right? This was not stopped. <laughs> like, nobody, I, I, maybe it's because no one's read it, I don't know, but it, it has gone through a process, and it is coming out, so that's good news, and it's coming out, and it's gonna be a, a US document from the government that talks about all these impacts at this very local level. I mean, that's significant, right, and, it ta and it's, I like about it, one of the things that it does that's, I think, um, it did a little last time. Last time they came out with the assessment, it was by region, and the regions were pretty big. Um, this time, like the Great Plains is like the entire middle of the country. I mean, the regions were quite big. This time they're actually taking, um, doing chapters on specific places, and it's a little bit more granular. Uh, the impact stuff is much better. The data is just better. The science is better. And the chapter I worked on, which is the adaptation chapter, is new. Um, and there's, so there's a, there's a real acknowledgement that we have to look at these risks and manage them the way we manage other risks, and that includes a fair amount of adaptation and resilience. So I think it's good news that it's coming out at all, and particularly that it's got some real local, local pieces. The other thing, and it's responsive to one of the early questions, is it, it's got a very strong focus on equity and inclusion, which was not true of the last one. Um, there's an entire tribal chapter, I know, um, but there's also just a whole kind of running throughout, there's really a focus on underserved communities and, the, and, and impacts on those communities and how to think about that. Um, and I think that's really challenging um, it, but, and new, but, but super important. Okay, two uh, final questions. Um, first, you know, for our personal lives and everything, what is the, as this person writes, the lowest hanging fruit for tackling climate change? You know, like as individuals? I, yeah, I'm, I guess I'll take moderator's prerogative here and, 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 and ask that in that way? Well, it turns out, I have a really good friend, because I live in the Bay Area, all my friends have apps, right? So I have a friend who's developing an app, uh, which is about how calculating your carbon footprint, and it's about, and it actually accesses, you know, um, your credit card receipts and driving record and stuff. It accesses a bunch of stuff that's on your phone now and like figures out what your footprint is, which is a little scary. Um, and, and I was talking to him about this question, because we all have this question, and he told me, and you probably know this, everybody, but the three big contributors as an individual, the three biggest contributors are eating meat, flying, and having children. So, uh, yeah, so I flew here and I have two children, so I am a, and I eat meat, but not that often, but I do eat meat. But it, um, it really hits home to me, and I think that's important to remember. I think anyone who hasn't read Drawdown, um, which came out last year, which has basically a list of all the things, I would look at that, because it's really, that's really interesting, because globally it includes things like educating women, which is way up on the list, it's in the top 10, um, which we would not have thought, um, yeah. but it's, it's way up there. So I just think there's a lot of things that aren't intuitive, 
Um, but, you know, honestly, just meat and land practices is just a really big one, particularly because we're going to have to use more land for reforestation, which means it's going to get, there's going to be a food forest balance thing. Population is growing, and, um, and we're going to have to change farming practices to be less intensive. And so those things are really important to think about as you're just thinking about it's, food choices. It's so on the Drawdown. Draw um, it's by, um, uh, uh, help me out here, Hawkins. Hawkins, Paul Hawkins, thank you. Uh, for Smith and Hawkins, that guy. It's Paul Hawkins, um, and it's called Drawdown. It's very, very good. A lot of uh, states are now creating these project drawdown kind of uh, organizations and committees to, to kind of try to tackle some of these things, because it's very specific. Sort of like, here are things that need to happen. My one quibble with drawdown is it's global, and so some of these things are less relevant in individual places, but frankly, you can figure it out for the place you're in. Yeah, the, the, the flying thing is so ironic to me because it seems like more and more people are flying and taking these big boats to go see the glaciers melting. You know, and it just well, and go to the climate conferences. And it, there's it, been very good research to show that one per, that that the, the carbon footprint of somebody who lives in San Francisco and drives a Tesla and is a vegetarian, um, who flies as much as people do who are in global business, is far higher than someone who lives in it, lives in the middle of the country, drives an SUV, and eats meat every day. It's far higher. So you, yeah, <laughs> flying is unbelievably bad. And the other thing about flying is that unlike car fuel, it's very hard to electrify planes. Um, they're not easy. It's very, very hard. One of these companies I talked about is actually capturing carbon from the air and turning it into jet fuel. So that's cool. Uh, <laughs> they're up in Canada. But it's very, very hard to deal with jet fuel. It's uh, one of those things that's going to be the last to change. So just, you know, think about flying. Can you really buy a carbon offset when you fly and make you can, it? You and can. Is it really, I mean, I, I think. Some of them are really is good. Is this stuff really good? Yeah, some okay. of them are really good. So last question, a couple people had this, um, and I'm just going to pick one of the ones. Um, what advice do you have for a college student motivated to make changes in environmental policy? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I mean, this is sort of a wonky answer, but. I just think we can't let this be an environmental issue only. I really do. I think we've got to make this more interdisciplinary. You know, go to business school and talk about climate risk and, and get it integrated into the mainstream curriculum. I mean, talk about it. Get, get it, you know, take economics classes, even if you don't want to, so that you can talk about these trends. And energy and, laws on the uptick, too. And right? energy law, too. I mean, get, get a, an education in the kind of nuts and bolts that make up this conversation. You know, who here even understands utility policy? I mean, grid, grid management is incredibly complicated, but incredibly important to this conversation. So is engineering, so is economics. So I would just say, the more this can be integrated, I see so many young graduates come out of environmental sciences degrees without, with, who have worked in environmental organizations who have never had to have a conversation about this stuff with somebody who's not in their field. And the single best advice I can give anybody is talk about these issues to people who don't already agree with you and who come from a different perspective because ultimately it is not going to be five million members of the Sierra Club that changed this in the United States. It's going to be, they're going to help. They're going to do a lot. Those of you in the audience who are Sierra Club members, you're going to do a ton. You're really important, but it's not going to be only you. Well, thank you very much. I learned so much. I hope you did too.
Thanks for tuning in to Building a Greener Idaho. Keep the conversation going on social media and at buildingagreeneridaho.org. And join us Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening.